Welcome to Let's Review RN. My name is Bryn O'Donnell, and I'm a certified adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. I work as a cardiology APN and function as a visiting professor and clinical instructor for a BSN program. This is an independent production by myself, and I am not representing any educational institution. My goal is to deliver a condensed but robust review on topics primarily discussed in Adult Health 1 and 2 and some pieces of pharmacology of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. Today, we will be discussing hyperparathyroidism. Hyperparathyroidism is when your parathyroid glands secrete too much parathyroid hormone, known as PTH, which results in hypercalcemia and hypophosphatemia. Now, to review a little, the parathyroid glands, there are four of them, are located behind the thyroid at the bottom of your neck and are about the size of a grain of rice. The parathyroid gland produces and secretes parathyroid hormone, again referred to as PTH, which stands for parathyroid hormone. PTH helps maintain an appropriate level of calcium in the bloodstream and in tissues that depend on calcium for proper functioning. The parathyroid gland is stimulated when your body has low calcium levels. Normal calcium levels are 8.6 to 10.0. The normal function of this feedback loop is when calcium levels fall below that normal range, so less than 8.6, the parathyroid gland then releases PTH to stimulate an increase in calcium by acting on the kidneys and the bones. The kidneys play a role in this feedback loop by responding to increased levels of PTH, which causes the kidneys to reabsorb calcium, and at the same time, the kidneys will excrete phosphate. This is one way that you can end up with hypercalcemia and hypophosphatemia due to the excess reabsorption of calcium by the kidneys and the excess excretion of phosphate. PTH also activates vitamin D, which allows calcium to be reabsorbed by the small intestines. Another mechanism of action that PTH has is that it stimulates osteoclasts, which is a type of bone cell that breaks down bone. This is important in the maintenance, repair, and remodeling of bones. When PTH stimulates osteoclasts, this then stimulates the process of bone resorption, which means osteoclasts are stimulated, resulting in the breakdown of tissue in the bones, which causes a release of minerals into the bloodstream and a transfer of calcium from the bone tissue to the bloodstream. So to tie it all together, in this normal negative feedback loop, Normal levels of calcium 8.6 to 10.0 would result in the halting of further PTH being released from the parathyroid glands, thus stopping the cascade of events. Now, when we talk about causes of hyperparathyroidism, we need to understand there are two types of hyperparathyroidism that exist, this being primary hyperparathyroidism and secondary hyperparathyroidism. Examples of primary hyperparathyroidism include a non-cancerous adenoma 
on the parathyroid gland itself, which results in overproduction and release of PTH. This is the most common form of primary hyperparathyroidism. Other causes of primary include hyperplasia of the parathyroid gland, meaning that the parathyroid gland is enlarged and therefore secretes excess PTH. Lastly, patients can have cancerous tumors on the parathyroid gland, which can lead to primary hyperparathyroidism. Now for secondary hyperparathyroidism, this occurs due to another disease that first causes low calcium levels in the body and over time, increased parathyroid hormone levels occur because of excess stimulation of the parathyroid gland due to low circulating calcium levels leading to this secondary hyperparathyroidism. The most common form of secondary hyperparathyroidism is renal failure. The parathyroid gland is overworked due to excess need and stimulation to reabsorb calcium and excrete phosphate in chronic renal failure. Another cause is chronic hypocalcemia, which overworks again the parathyroid gland by constantly stimulating the parathyroid gland to release PTH due to the need for more circulating calcium in the bloodstream. Vitamin D deficiency is also a cause of hyperparathyroidism because remember, vitamin D allows us to absorb calcium from our small intestines and therefore if we are vitamin D deficient, we will have low reabsorption of calcium in the small intestines resulting in hypocalcemia, thus stimulating the parathyroid gland to release more PTH. When we are talking about signs and symptoms of hyperparathyroidism, we need to remember that high calcium drives the symptoms. So when a patient presents, they may have poor bone health. And what I mean by that is the development of osteoporosis or bone fractures are often seen. Remember, PTH causes excessive breakdown of the bone to allow for increased calcium to be circulating in the bloodstream which causes the bone health to be very fragile and predisposes the patient to bone fractures and breaks. Patients will be at high risk for developing calculi, which are kidney stones as a result of excessive reabsorption of calcium by the kidneys and as well as excessive urination resulting in dehydration, which can lead to the formation of calcium-based kidney stones. Hypercalcemia is also related to nerve dysfunction, slowing of the muscle contraction, and therefore patients can present with constipation. And this is due to slowing of the GI smooth muscle as well as decreased nerve stimulation to the GI tract. Patients can have nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, which may be related to epigastric pain due to excessive gastric acid production. Other symptoms include depression or forgetfulness, tiring easily and weakness, as well as frequent complaints of illness with no apparent cause. EKG changes can be seen with hypercalcemia, specifically a shortened QT interval. Now let's talk about treatment options for both primary and secondary hyperparathyroidism. For primary hyperparathyroidism, the most common form of treatment is a parathyroidectomy, where they go in and remove the enlarged tumorous parathyroid gland or glands. Postoperatively, it is imperative to monitor for respiratory distress in these patients since their incision site is near the airway and they can experience excessive swelling. It is important that they lay in a semi-fowler's position to eliminate strain on the surgical site. 
It's also important to keep a trach kit at the bedside as well as have easy access to oxygen and suction. Postoperatively, we want to monitor for low serum calcium levels. You'll want to assess for signs and symptoms related to hypocalcemia, including tingling and numbness, muscle twitching, positive trousseaus, or Chivostic sign. Chivostic sign is a clinical sign of hypocalcemia, which consists of twitching of the muscles innervated by the facial nerve. To assess for this, the facial nerve is tapped in front of the tragus, which would produce a contraction of the facial muscles, ipsilateral, meaning that that same side that you're tapping. This is due to a hyperexcitability of the nerves from low calcium levels. Trousseau's sign is a clinical sign for tetany in which carpal spasms can be elicited by compressing the upper arm. So this can be done by using a blood pressure cuff, which is inflated, to cause decreased blood flow to the nerves distally or down the arm, resulting in spasm or contraction of the fingers and the wrists below that inflated cuff, which is a positive chivostic sign. Medications used for treatment of hyperparathyroidism, um, the goal is to decrease PTA production, which will ultimately reduce calcium levels and minimize dehydration. So calcimimetics are prescribed for patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism in order to trick the parathyroid gland into thinking that there is enough circulating calcium in the bloodstream, which will then reduce the production of PTH. So In other words, these medications mimic calcimimetics, so you can kind of remember that by they mimic serum calcium to help reduce stimulation of the parathyroid. A specific teaching point for these medications for patients is that you want to take calcimimetics with food. Calcitonin is another medication which is either injected or given nasally to reduce the osteoclast activity, which will decrease resorption of bone and therefore reduce the release of calcium from the bone tissue into the bloodstream. This medication will also encourage the kidneys to excrete more calcium to help reduce those calcium levels. Loop diuretics can be used to decrease calcium levels, but you need to be sure to monitor patients' potassium levels as patients lose excessive amounts of potassium with loop diuretics. Biophosphonates are also commonly used for treatment. So an example is Fosamax, which helps protect bones from the osteoclast activity and therefore prevents the further breakdown of bone tissue and the release of calcium into the bloodstream. When patients are on biophosphonates, we want to be sure to educate our patients that this class of medication should be taken on an empty stomach alone with a full glass of water. They should be encouraged to wait 30 minutes before taking any other medications or vitamins or antacids. Now let's talk about nursing interventions. When focusing on nursing interventions for the hyperparathyroid patient, we want to be sure that we are monitoring their vital signs, looking for EKG changes, straining the urine if they've developed kidney stones. We want to monitor the calcium and phosphate levels monitor urinary input and output, and encourage fluids as the patients are prone to dehydration. We want to encourage a diet low in calcium, which means having them avoid dairy products, specifically yogurt, cheese, milk, and ice cream, and also kefir, and avoiding any processed foods that, are, that contain high amounts of dairy. 
In most patients, we will encourage they eat a diet high in phosphate with the exception of our chronic renal failure patients who already have elevated phosphate levels and therefore we would not recommend increasing phosphorus in their diets. Foods that are rich in phosphorus but not rich in calcium are meats, nuts, seeds, and beans. So dairy products do contain high levels of phosphorus, but in these patients, we want to avoid them because we don't want excess calcium. So I hope you all have enjoyed today's episode of Let's Review RN. Remember, you can always find me on Instagram at Let's Review RN, where I do daily education tips. So check it out. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.